Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay, let's jump in the Word. We're resuming our verse-by-verse study through 1 Corinthians this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 here today, is as far as we have come now in this letter. And with chapter 8, a little bit of refresher here, with chapter 8 comes a new question from the Corinthian church. If you recall, Paul has been answering their questions Right? The first part of the letter, Paul was addressing some more urgent matters, things that he felt needed to be dealt with with the church in Corinth, things that needed to be established, doctrinal issues, unity issues. And then from there, he shifted to answering questions that they had sent to him in an earlier letter. And so now he's been addressing these questions. And... Uh, And as we come to chapter 8, he begins responding to a new question. And this response will will really carry us all the way through chapter 10. So chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all kind of geared towards answering the same question or the same theme. And that is the topic of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. The freedoms, that is, that Christians have in Christ and because of Christ. And what I hope we'll see in our study this morning, specifically in chapter 8, is that as we consider our liberties in Christ, the things that we can do because of Christ, that, and I would title my message this way this morning, that we have the liberty to love. So because of Christ, we have the freedom to love others. Now, the Bible is very clear on certain things. We know this. There are certain things in Scripture that it's going to be difficult, even though some people foolishly try, to get around them, to convince themselves that the Bible doesn't say what it says. But on many things, it is quite clear. But then there are other things Matters that are seemingly left to discretion, left to the leading of the Spirit. Not unlike Paul's dealing with marriage and singleness in the previous chapters, where he often said this was his opinion, but not a mandate. Here in chapters 8 through 10, we'll continue, or Paul will continue to share wisdom from his own experience, not necessarily mandates. And so he begins in chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read just a few verses together. Paul says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Paul kicks it off here at the beginning of chapter 8 saying, 
now concerning things offered to idols. So now Paul turns to the next of their questions. This is a transition point, which involves here, the question involves the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. So remember, Corinth was a pagan city, and it was characterized by worship of pagan gods. In the worship at pagan temples, it was believed that the soul of animals that were offered were consumed by the idol. And then the meat was usually, after that sacrifice was made, that meat was divided into three portions. One portion was burnt in honor of the idol. It was entirely consumed with fire. One portion was given to the worshiper, to take home and eat, and the third portion was given to the priest. Now, sometimes the different portions of meat were not taken, whether by the priest or the worshiper who was there. And so if they didn't want to eat their portion, they were then the meat was then sold at the temple restaurant. So there was oftentimes a restaurant there associated with the temple or the market. And the market was called a shamble. And often, it was these markets that had the best prices, okay? And if anybody you know a Christian, you know a Christian is going to search out a deal, right? <laughs> they're going to seek to be good stewards, and they're going to find, hey, down at the shamble down in the corner of Fifth and Main, you get some good meat prices, right? And um, so this is kind of what was happening. In fact, most people in Corinth at the time couldn't afford meat, And so often for anyone in the middle to lower class to have meat, it really needed to be purchased at one of these markets to be afforded. But within the church, as we already know about the church in Corinth, there was a lot of tensions and disagreements about different things. And so there was growing tension between those who felt that this was okay, you can go ahead and buy meat at that market, and then there were those who felt like it was wrong because of the pagan influence or involvement. And it wasn't just limited to a person who maybe was seen sort of, they had to sneak in, they came out with their bag of meat, you know, no, anybody see me. But sometimes even you go to dinner at somebody's house, and you'd say, oh, this this is a great filet. Where'd you get it? And they'd say, well, I got it down in that market. And they're like, oh no, I already took a bite. Right? What am I going to do now? I've been defiled by this meat. And so these are the different things happening, right? People are really conflicted over this. They've, and so they, they look to Paul and they say, Paul, we need your help. Give us some insight on this matter. Now, if this topic sounds familiar at all, It should, because Paul dealt with a very similar matter in his letter to the Romans, to the Roman church. In fact, in Romans chapter 14, he says almost verbatim some of the things that he will share here with the Corinthian church. They too were having disputes over the eating of meat, in addition to some other things. Dietary preference, esteeming one day over another with regard to the Sabbath, which day is the right day to celebrate the Sabbath. Now, these were matters of preference, and they were matters of conviction. People felt strongly about one thing versus the other, and just as Paul did with the Roman church, uh, he, uh, sorry, we a little distracted there. Um, Just as he did with the Roman church, so he counsels the Corinthian church. So Paul says here, we know that we all have knowledge. 
But knowledge puffs up, he says, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, when you read these two verses, you might be thinking, okay, now I'm confused. (laughs) Paul said something about idol worship and meat sacrifice idols, and now he's saying knowledge, and if you know anything, you don't know anything, and what's happening here? Well, Paul, what he's doing here is he's setting the stage for a context that's beyond just the eating of meat, okay? And this is good news for us. If Paul were addressing, if this morning what we had before us was simply Paul addressing the consumption of meat offered to idols alone, well, this would have little bearing on us in our cultural context today. Now, certainly we could glean something from it. We could take a a learning from it. But because of how Paul addresses this question, not only does he or will he answer their question, but he's going to give us, the church today, a broader application that provides some additional principles for us to consider. We're going to look at four principles here this morning. So Paul says, look, he says, we all have knowledge. Remember, the Corinthian church was all about knowledge. That is, they wanted to learn things. They wanted to know people who who knew things. And they wanted to figure things out. It was their way, if you recall, of really achieving status. The more they knew, the more important they were. So in the church, you had people who knew something, right? Some people who were like, I know the answer here. They're reaching out to Paul. They're not reaching out with a sense of, I really want to know. They're they're reaching out saying, I already understand. I already know. I I have an understanding of how this is to be handled. And, And so some people, some people in the church, they have the thought of, look, you can eat meat from the temples because, and we'll see this, because idols aren't real. So who cares? They may have been offered an idol, but that idol doesn't actually exist, and so we shouldn't even be all that worried about it. Nothing's really happened to this meat, so take the discount on the steak. And then you have others who are like, oh, I know something here. (laughs) I know that we shouldn't have anything to do with things that are of this world, and in order to be more spiritual, we're going to refrain from eating these things. And like so many cases, even in the church still today, you have some people who are sort of writing the non-canonical books of first and second opinions, right? And just sharing it. Oh, I know something. And Paul says, we all have knowledge. We all know a little bit about a little bit. But he's saying we don't know all. Even though some think they do. And the one who thinks they know anything... Paul says they probably don't. I remember when I was in my <clears throat> second year, second year of New Testament Greek. Boy, if I had a conversation with somebody about the Bible, man, I was convinced, at least for a short period of time, that I was just going to be an expert on the matter. I'm taking New Testament Greek, second year. I'm studying the Bible in, in its original language. And then I ran into a guy who had like 12 degrees. <laughs> and I went to one of his conferences, a great guy. And uh, literally, I mean, he's got so many PhDs that people are just giving him PhDs because they're like, we want, on, we want to get in on this, right? Just give this guy another PhD. And I remember he just started blasting all the 
all the biblical studies guys that are like, and he just flat out says, he said, you think you know something, right? And I mean, he just brought, he, he brought us down exactly where we needed to be. Because if you know anything about Greek, you know that a second year Greek student doesn't know anything. <laughs> or rather, you know just enough to screw it all up and make a fool of yourself. Right? And so sometimes we can get into that place. I was in that place, thinking you knew something, but really you know very little. And moreover, what about the heart of the matter? What about the things that the Lord really wants you to know about His Word? Paul, who is educated, who, who has experience, Paul, who has reputation, and, 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 and certainly uh, now an element of humility, even at the very beginning or towards the beginning of this letter in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul said what? He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Paul was one who had an understanding of knowledge. What knowledge gets you and what it doesn't. And so Paul is recognizing here at the beginning, before he gets into this matter, he's saying, look guys, knowledge that puffs up or leads to arrogance, is to be rejected. And he could recognize early on, you guys are going down this path. You think you know something, but you're being arrogant here. He says, rather, it's the one who knows love. Who understands these things. Who understands the heart of God. So Paul then begins from here then, to lay the groundwork for his ultimate answer to this question, and that is, Love. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And so what we need to understand right off the bat this morning before we consider sort of the specific of the question, and the first principle for us today is love of God leads to understanding. Love of God leads to understanding. We read elsewhere in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction similarly only when we come to a place of knowing God can we really begin to have understanding this is foundational then for the rest of Paul's argument as he says in verse 4 therefore so we know in verses 1 through 3, Paul has made an initial argument, and then in verse 4, he connects to that argument by saying, therefore, building off of that, he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. So Paul brings the focus back to knowledge now, saying we know that an idol is nothing. There is no other God but one. Other gods are made up by people. I'm mindful of, uh, I, love this, I love this chapter. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is where the ark is, is captured by the Philistines, right? Many of you know this. And the Philistines, they take the ark and they're like, oh, we're awesome, we got it, and we're going to take it back. And they put it in the, the house of Dagon, one of their gods, right? Now, the ark, you know, is the mercy seat. Uh, it's the place where the glory of God would rest, and it was used in the tabernacle. The priests would offer the blood of the sacrifice sacrifice upon it for the atonement of the sins of the people the ark also served as a means by which god would go before the people they would carry it before them he would lead them and so very much the ark sought to sort of uh, capture the presence of god and now it's being put in this pagan temple 
So in the morning, you know, they settle the ark in there. Okay, it's right there, and Dagon's next to it. And they're like, you guys have a good night. And uh, they come back in, and, and, and Dagon, their idol, is falling over. He's toppled over. And they're like, <gasps> oh. And they pick him back up, you know, dust him off and set him up. Okay, that's weird. And they go on about their day. And they come in the, the next day, and he's fallen again. And his head fell off. And so did his hands. So now the Dagon is laying on the ground and he's broken. And they think, this is terrible. And so what do they do? Do they repent and say, we must worship the one true God of Israel? Or they go, get the ark out of here. Right? So, they, so then they're like, well, what are we going to do with this thing? So they send it to the next town over. And the next town takes it. And things start to happen there. People are getting sick. They're getting boils and ulcers. They're like, ah. Oh. And they, we've got to get rid of this thing. So they send it to another town. And then that town takes it. They're like, what are we going to do with this thing? And finally they're like, we've got to give it back. Get it back to Israel. Give it back to the one God of Israel. Right? And, and, it's, and it's crazy because here's this evidence before them of you're dealing with real power now such that your little idols are toppling over and breaking, but they don't have the sense to worship the God of Israel. They just say, get rid of this thing. And so Paul here is saying, look, we get it. Idols, are, they're not real. They have no power. And of course, there's people in the church that are probably saying, see, told you, let's eat, let's eat steak. Let's go. But they've got to listen to everything that Paul has to say. Paul says, verse 5, for even... Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, what's Paul saying here? It's important to understand. He's saying, basically, people try to worship a lot of different things. Notice those are all lowercase, right? Lowercase g, lowercase l. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. And so here's an incredible statement from Paul just to the, um, the unity of the Godhead and the power of God. And so he says, look, he says, we serve one God and there is only one. And, and so then, and I'll explain this a little bit further, but what we start to see here, what Paul's really communicating then, is principle number two, we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. So again, context here, regarding meat offered to idols, Paul's saying they're just idols. They're made with human hands. There is only one true God. So you don't need to worry about these things. In essence, is what Paul is, is saying. As far then as not eating meat, we need to be careful that being free from such restrictions, the things that God has freed us from, that Christ has freed us from, that we don't bring ourselves back under bondage to these worldly things that Christ freed us from. So truly, I do believe that Paul is saying, look, these idols, they're not real. You are concerned about meat offered to them such that you say, I don't want to eat that meat. And he's saying, be careful because there is only one God. And if you begin to restrict yourself from these things, you're potentially bringing yourself now back under bondage to something that Christ freed you from. Okay? 
Paul deals with this a little bit in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, 1 through 4, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And so what, what, what becomes the problem, whether it's diet or some other restriction Christians place upon themselves that isn't clear in Scripture, we begin to convince ourselves that we are more spiritual, that we're closer to God or more pleasing to God when we do these things. And all we are really doing is depending on our own works to save us. Right? We've got to understand this. So whether it's diet, in this case it was meat, but modern context, right? A lot of times there's a conversation about alcohol. So diet, meat, alcohol, we could add a bunch of things to that list. Holidays, okay? Let's talk about holidays for a moment. A Christmas tree, an Easter basket. I'm not going to do this to you right now, but if right now in the room I said, show of hands, how many people have a Christmas tree at Christmas time and how many people don't, you reject that, we'd have some different hands. If I said, hey, just last weekend, who got an Easter basket? Who didn't? We could have a debate over that, right? We know these things. These are the types of things that continually come into play. Should you, shouldn't you? Entertainment. Movies, no movies. TV, no TV. Chosen. Can you watch The Chosen? <laughs> Somebody's trying to play Jesus. You can't play Jesus. I can't watch that. He's trying to play Jesus. You might be convicted on that. There's a lot of these different things, right? And on and on and on and on it goes. Paul says, look, be careful that you don't bring yourself back under the law and fallen from grace. Be careful you don't bring yourself back to a, to a belief that I have to do X, Y, and Z for God to be pleased with me. God's pleased with you because you know His Son, Jesus. That's what covers. So, we can look at this and we can say, well, hey, praise God. Little pigs, here we come. But be careful. <laughs> Watch out now. Paul continues in Galatians. He says in verses 5 and 6, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Notice here he said circumcision or uncircumcision. He's starting to lump both of these things together. He says neither of these things really do anything, meaning whether you do it or you say, no, we're not going to do it. What matters, he says, is faith working through love. So Paul says, look, circumcision, no circumcision, restriction, no restriction. It does nothing. What it needs to be about is love. Does that sound familiar? So what is Paul saying? Verse 7, however, so there's that, oh wait a second, so there's some people in the church that are like, they're like, yeah, here we go. Paul's answering the question exactly how I wanted to answer. And then he says, however, and they're like, oh no. However, What? There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Paul is saying not everyone has the same knowledge as you. They may not have the full understanding that an idol is nothing. And so we need to be careful. We need to be mindful. We need to be thoughtful. We need to ask ourselves, listen, what struggles might others whom I'm in fellowship with have? What convictions might they have? Principle number three, some Christians are weaker in the faith. And you might say, well, that's, why aren't they stronger? (laughs) Well, maybe they need somebody who's going to come along and lovingly disciple. Listen, there are different kinds of Christians. We know this. Some are weak, or better stated, and I'll give you three categories here. Some are immature, are weak in the faith. You could kind of, those two things sort of go hand in hand because they're baby Christians, because they're new to the faith. They're new to the faith and they're learning how God's kingdom is different. And so there's some things in the world that still have very much an influence on them that they're learning to overcome. Now there are some who are immature and they're immature because they refuse to grow. They're just not willing to engage and become a part of things. They're not willing to bring themselves under the authority of Scripture to regularly be a part of a fellowship. And so they don't grow. And they remain kind of stuck in wrong patterns of thinking. They rely frequently on their own morality to convince them that they're okay. Because they're not seeking to understand and grow in God's grace. And then there's some who are weak because they're scared. They don't trust God's grace. Anybody reading The Cure? Got a few hands. I know more of you are because I've had people reaching out to me saying, man, this book is blowing me away. Because for a lot of people, and I'm not, make, I'm not, I'm not condemning here. I've been through it myself regularly. Growing in God's grace. Coming to an understanding of how often we live our lives in certain ways because we've convinced ourselves that we have to do this and we have to do this and we have to do this in order to earn his favor in order to be okay in order to be loved by him and and so on and so forth and some people they're just scared they're scared to really really trust his grace and so they they remain stuck in patterns of legalism because they're convinced that it's the only way to remain right with god For many people, it's because that was the only way to remain right with your own Father. And so we apply earthly relationships to a heavenly one. So then, the more mature believer must understand, and yes, there is a differentiation here. Yes, at the end of this, you can say, Paul clearly identifies those who are stronger in the faith, who are more comfortable in their freedoms, as being more mature. And you can make an argument for that, but he doesn't say more spiritual. The more mature believer must understand that these patterns exist in the church. That these patterns exist amongst the body that they consider themselves a part of. And that the immature believer is the one who is more prone to legalism. Even though sometimes that believer fancies themselves to be more mature or more spiritual because they're trying to be disciplined in certain things. But what Paul wants us to see here, verses 8 and 9, is he says, but food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. 
So now he's kind of taking both groups and he's saying, look, some of you think because you're eating you're better and some of you think because you don't you're you're better. But he's saying all of you are missing the point here. Verse 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And so this is really then what it all comes down to. Paul's sort of taking it now beyond the topic of eating meat. He's saying, look, eating meat or exercising your liberty isn't about being right or wrong. He's saying diet, holidays, entertainment, whatever the thing is, you fill in the blank. He says much of it has no bearing on your salvation. You're in fact free from such moral efforts because of Christ. Rather, it's about considering others and those who struggle with these things, those who are convicted by these things. Verse 10, For if anyone sees you, you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And so what he's asking here is, are you considering others in love? Look, what, what's the, what is, for, for Christians, what is the more excellent way? Look back at verse 3. It's love. It's love. Galatians 5, 6, love working through faith. Mind you, if you haven't thought about this a little bit yet in terms of our study of Corinthians, do you think it's, do you think it's coincidence that Paul is going to address Christian liberty through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then he's going to deal with some other matters of the community of faith in 11 and 12. And then in 13, what's he going to spend an entire chapter on? Love. It's all building to that. It's building for Paul to chapter 13 where he's going to say, guys, look. If you do all these other things, you figure out all this other stuff, you have all this other knowledge, you have all these skills, all of these gifts, all these experiences, you do all these things, but you don't love, it's nothing. Just like we considered last Sunday, the greatest demonstration of love, love that Peter says covers a multitude of sins. That's what it's about. So, when we consider others in love, then we'll consider our own behaviors. Whether or not we have freedom, we'll, we'll consider it. Because, because, verses 11 and 12, because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. We need to ask ourselves, do we want to be responsible for leading another into sin? Christ gave His life. How important is your steak dinner? That's what Paul wants him to understand. Now you might say, yeah, but it's not really sin, Paul. You, you just said it. Think of the meat they could enjoy if they only knew. I'm just trying to lead him into this. No, no. Look, he says it's an issue of conscience for them. They're growing. Are you willing to sacrifice for their benefit? For some of these Corinthians, they were just saved out of idolatry. 
Many of you can probably think, hopefully you can think and remember when you came to know Jesus, when you really gave your life to Him. And what of the things that you were involved in prior to that? Were you ready to just, boom, go back into it? You get saved out of addiction? Let's go hang out with all the addicts. No, right? You weren't going to go back there. In, in fact, what you probably said is, I, flee, I, I had to flee from it. I had to run from it. And maybe in your maturing, as God has done a work in you, now you find that He's bringing you back to some of those places to witness, right? Now you are able to come back and minister and encourage. That's the beauty of recovery ministry as God brings people back into that environment as He's done a work in their life. But right off the bat, no. I mean, when I got saved, I remember when I came back from college, that first year, I mean, just radically saved in my freshman year of college, and I got home, and I was literally like, I wanted to be bold in my faith, right? And I was for all the people that I didn't know. If I didn't know you, man, I'd share Jesus with you. But if I knew you from my past, I would like duck an army crawl down the aisle at the store. Be like, I just got I can't, I can't be here right now. There was just a fear of going back into that. And there was, for a good bit, a good season, elements of legalism. No, can't do that. No, can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. Because there was just this sense of, I can't have anything to do with these things. I'm sure you guys can relate to that. And so for some of these guys, they're just saved out of idolatry. And to be eaten in the pagan temple or food associated with it was just too difficult for them. Now, yes, do we pray that they mature beyond this? Certainly. But here's the other thing, especially within the body of Christ, Lord willing, there's always going to be another new believer coming in. And so it's more about then understanding we, this is why intimacy amongst the body is really important, so that we have an understanding of who is our body comprised of? What are the struggles in our fellowship? Where are people coming from in our fellowship? In case you didn't know it, South Carolina is a little different than California, Right? And so you better believe that churches in California may be dealing with some different things than what we are. Some things very much the same, don't get me wrong. But we are not, and these are blanket statements, we are not experiencing as much of um, people in this area coming out of New Age mysticism and New Age cults, right? I mean, it's here, don't get me wrong. But we're not seeing that as much. What we see, in fact, more of is people who grew up in the church who think they know Jesus, but maybe don't. Right? People who, they grew up with smoking and drinking just being just fine, and now they're, they're, they're struggling with some of those types of things and working through that, right? So that becomes more of an issue in a certain part of the country than it does another. But you go out to California, and yeah, you're going to be dealing with a lot more of like dietary type stuff that's coming out of New Age cults. So we've got to know where are people coming from? What are their experiences? So then, as I'm a part of that body, I know, look, I know I have freedom maybe in this area, but because of the family that I'm a part of, I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to lay that down. That's not important. Because, man, I've got brothers and sisters that are they're new. They're learning to love Jesus. And I don't want to mess that up for them. So what's our body? How is our body affected? Paul says, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And you may look at that at face value and go, Oh no, 
Got those big grills sitting right out there. Some of you can see the grill right now. <laughs> Hopefully it's not causing you to stumble. <laughs> and so, yes, it, maybe it is that. Maybe it's a, 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 it's a specific thing, but what pa- Paul speaks to here is that heart, right? Whatever it is, if I'm going to make them stumble, I don't want anything to do with it. Principle number four. Let liberty be limited by love. If there's anything that we're going to limit, may it be our liberty for the sake of love. Because here's the thing, we are so free that we can give that freedom up for the sake of another. There's one who did it. Who is just as you prayed this morning, did not consider it robbery that he was equal with God. But he left his rightful place in heaven and condescended his throne and became man and dwelt among us. Now Paul is going to continue to build on this topic of Christian liberty as I mentioned over the next two chapters. For today I want for us to understand that this isn't about, this isn't about meat eating, right? I think we know this. This is about love for one another. Love of God brings greater understanding than human knowledge. And yes, there is tremendous freedom in Christ, but in His freedom, Christ Himself gave His life for us. And He set us in diverse families. The body of Christ, each person dealing with different things. And He calls us to lay our lives down for one another. So as we consider each other, may we too use our freedom to sacrifice for others in love. Now, for some, the question becomes, to what end, right? Or how long? Or even in what way, right? And to that I would say, and here's the, and here's the quite frankly, wonderful answer, but one that we sometimes struggle with. And that is we trust the Spirit to lead. We trust the Spirit to lead. Look, there's certain things that as a church, especially different holidays, we don't do. Why don't we do it? Well, because we've prayed. And we've trusted the Holy Spirit to lead us and to know that even though within individual families, certain families celebrate things differently, when we bring the body together, we just want to be sensitive. We want to be sensitive to conscience. And so we've allowed the Lord to lead us to do things and to not do things that maybe a church across the street or across town is doing. And we don't condemn that or judge that. We just know, hey, based off of our fellowship, this is how the Lord's leading us. And it's the same practice in our individual lives. So if there's something in your life you're thinking, oh man, I, I really like this movie. Do I need to stop watching this movie? Look, I'm not going to tell you that today. Far be it from me to tell you to stop doing something. What I would say is pray. Understand who you're, who, who's your family. Who are you spending time with? Do you know them? Do you know them well enough to know, man, I know this is an issue for them. And I don't want to cause them to stumble. Because when we place, if I were to stand here, like, like quite frankly in many churches and begin to place upon you, legalism that's not rooted in Scripture, but simply because we say, hey, this is what you guys have to do because of this. Well, now I'm placing a restriction on you that's bringing you right back under legalism. And here's the amazing thing. 
we are a people indwelt with the Spirit of God who can trust the Spirit so long as we're listening and not quenching to guide us in this. I'll share with you a story that I think captures it well as we close. And worship team, you can come on up. Many of you know these names, first of which is George Fox. He died in 1691. We're going way back. George Fox was the founder of the Quakers. Some of you know of the Quakers more than just the Oats. It was a Christian movement in 17th century England. Now, two of the significant Quaker principles were, one, teaching on pacifism, okay, refusal for violence, and two, equality. That was, they sought to abolish any sort of class distinction. Now, one famous Quaker is William Penn. William Penn grew up in the upper class, okay? Had the best education available. At the age of 23, Penn became a Quaker. Soon after, as is often the case, everything in his life began to change. Now, it was common in Penn's day, because of his class distinction, to wear a sword. Now, the sword was not intended to harm anyone. It was simply a sign that he belonged to the upper class. But for him, with those two teachings from the Quaker, he was conflicted. Right? He struggled with whether he should wear the sword because the sword was, as we know, a symbol of war for many, and in his case, also a symbol of class distinction. Two key things that the Quakers stood squarely against. So Penn went to Fox, who was his mentor, to seek guidance on the matter and asked, may I continue to wear the sword? He asked Fox, not unlike what the Corinthian church was asking of Paul. He said, I would have expected Fox to say, no, you must get rid of it. Turn it into a plowshare. Never wear anything like it again. Instead, George Fox offered a response that is of great wisdom in the area of Christian living for us today. He said, wear it as long as you can, William. Wear it as long as you can. What Fox laid out to his mentee that day was an important principle in the Christian life, and that is when it comes to our practices and behavior, we need to avoid making rules and laws and trust the leading of the Spirit. Fox did not say don't wear it, nor did he say it's all right to wear it. He trusted that Penn would make the right decision in time as the Holy Spirit spoke to him. Had Fox given him a command, he would have robbed Penn of the opportunity to listen to the Holy Spirit. And he would have put in place a rigid standard, legalism, which always leads to rebellion. So we have the privilege this morning to say, Lord, would you by your Spirit show me the things in my life that maybe, Lord, are liberties that I've long exercised to my own preference, but not to the benefit of those that I spend time with. And maybe there's nothing, maybe there's nothing in your life as it currently stands that is creating an issue, but maybe you simply pray, Lord, keep me sensitive. If you join us in prayer on Sunday mornings, one of the things that I most consistently pray for is, Lord, lead us this morning. Give us, Lord, a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit that in every interaction we would know and we would minister well. We would understand. We would minister with compassion. That's a prayer for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning, Lord, for a new day. That alone, Lord, is we recognize a blessing. 
the sunshine, the sign of your faithfulness, the breath in our lungs. Lord, may every word that proceed from our mouth, Lord, be pleasing to you. Every song we sing, may it be lifted to you, the one deserving of our praise. But Lord, regarding this matter that we're beginning to consider here and will the next couple of weeks, as I've just encouraged, Lord, may you do that work in each of our hearts to give us a sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit. Lord, we don't want to put rules and regulations upon people. We're free. Free indeed in you, Lord Jesus. But we know that you've freed us to love well, to love as you love. And so that means often, Lord, laying down our will, our desires, our preferences, our lives for another. Lord, we do not, I trust, we agree together in this, do not ever want to be a people who are leading others astray, leading them, Lord, to violate their conscience because of our own personal desires, but rather a people who are leading in love, many, to you, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, do that work in our hearts. We know that you need to do that work. Lord, we can't do it in and of ourselves. But by your Spirit, Lord, that is with us, in us, and upon us, we know that you can accomplish that in us. And so, Lord, may we be a people that surrender here this morning and say, Lord, not our wills, but yours. Lord, help us to be sensitive especially, Lord, in our fellowship, in our body, to consider each and every person that's here that calls this place home, to consider them family. Lord, what would we do for them? Hopefully, Lord, exactly what you've done, laying it all down. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Lord, we ask that you do this work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.